Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Daniel chapter 6. That's the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to look at that entire chapter, kind of walk through it this morning. Uh, if you were not here last week and you missed the message, I wasn't here last week either. So if, like, if you weren't here, it's like, I didn't know you weren't here. You didn't know I wasn't, I wasn't here either. But actually, you missed out Larry Powers, who's my brother-in-law and one of my best friends in the world, spoke. And he's just amazing. He talked out of Psalm 46 about God being our refuge. So I encourage you, if you, get, you weren't here, go online. You can listen or watch the message. Um, but this morning, we're going to be in Daniel 6. And someone asked me earlier this morning, like, what series are we in? And I'm like, well, we're not really in a series. The series that we're kind of in is, uh, I feel like there's certain things that God wants us to touch on through the summer, and so we've kind of been jumping from Old Testament, New Testament, and so this morning we're, we're going to be in, in Daniel 6, where we're going to talk about learning to trust God. Now, for some, you're like, oh yeah, I trust God, and we think about the areas where it's really easy to trust God, where there is any challenges that we face, and I can give that over to God and trust Him fully, but, but trusting God is a holistic endeavor. It means we are willing to give everything to God and to trust Him. Now, most of us live in a tension that maybe we're unaware of when it comes to trust. And that tension is somewhere between control and trust. So just to kind of give you the understanding. So do this real quick. If you're taking notes, you can just put, put stuff down. Right. Put your hands out in front of you. Put your, your hands out with your palms up in front of you, okay? The position you're in right now, obviously, an open-handed is, is position of trust. So if you have something in your hand, you're not protecting it. You're offering it. It's open before you. Now, with your right hand, make a fist, The fist is a perfect example of control, which means I have something valuable in my hand, and whoever's standing in front of me, I don't trust them with it, so I'm going to keep it from them so they can't have it, and I can hang on to it. So when we try to follow Jesus, I know it's true in my life, we live somewhere in the middle of these two realities. This is where God wants us to live, which is completely open-handed. Everything that I have is yours, God. I trust you with my life, with my relationships, with my career, with my home, everything. And then there's this, this, this idea, though, and I, I know what happens. We're like, I trust God, but then in the back of our mind, we're like, but what if he fails me? What if he doesn't come through? So what do we start doing? We start forming. You can put your hands down now. I just want you to say, I'm going to leave it that. It'll be fun to watch you guys. Like, do I do it now? Do I? But what happens is we start to question, is he really trustworthy? Is he going to fail me? And then what happens is we start shifting towards control, and we call it, we don't use this phrase, but we call it plan B. What if God doesn't come through? What am I going to do? How am I going to make sure that I can take care of this? How, how can I make sure I can control this? Because we always think that God needs help, doesn't he? He needs our help. That's why, you know, it's funny. In some surveys, when people ask, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? It's unbelievable. There are not so much anymore, but there was actually a time when people said this. My favorite verse in the Bible is, God helps those who help themselves. Do you know that's not in the Bible? No, that's more of our way of saying God needs my help, right? God doesn't need your help. He wants your life. And there's a huge difference between the two. And so this morning we're going to be in Daniel 6. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in the first four verses. And there's just six questions I want to ask as we walk through the passage that I think will help us to kind of unpack what it means to really trust God. The first one is in verses 1 through 4, and it's this. Do I trust God with my position? Now, before I read this, Daniel chapter 6 is a va- very famous passage because it's, we all call it Daniel in the lion's den. Okay? It's great. Here's the challenge, though. I know I grew up in the church. Sometimes the challenge of growing up in the church is you hear stories so often, in your mind they become legend. Not saying that they're, they're fake, but they become something that you look at as almost, even though you don't say it, almost a fairy tale. This actually happened. What we're about to read is actually a historical event that happened to someone who was learning to trust God. 
So with that in mind, understanding that what we're about to read too is Israel is in a place which they find themselves so often. They've lost everything. God gave them a land which they lost because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. And now they're in captivity or they're exiled, which means they're either removed from their nation or they're living under basically the occupation of another force. And this is obviously was led by the Babylonian Empire. And so now you have Daniel living in a context that is counter to everything that he believes. He is the, the small minority that actually believes that God is who he says he is. And he's living in a context where most people have no concept for who God is and would be actually living the opposite that Daniel's living. That's the context. Anybody ever feel like that's you? You feel like you're ever like you're always constantly swimming upstream? That's the culture that we live in. So with that in, in mind, look at, look at the first four verses and we're asking this question, do I trust God with my position? So it says this. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel in regard to the kingdom, but they could not find, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So what I want you to look at, what I want us to look at about that is Daniel found himself in a position that he did not earn on his own. Daniel rose to a place of being the top three, and then from this passage, what we can tell is the king was actually going to make him the equivalent of the prime minister over that empire, which means that Daniel would be the most powerful person in the world. How did Daniel get there? You know, one of the things, if you read the early part of Daniel and you read through this, one of the things that you will never find is Daniel advocating for himself. He's never positioning himself. He's never trying to rearrange circumstances to make himself look good. He's doing what? He's simply being obedient and trusting God with his life. That's all he's doing. And then he continues to move forward. And that's important for you and I because I I know I've experienced this in my life. I take matters into my own hands. I start closing my fist. I start controlling. And I start worrying about status and position and advancement. Anybody would admit you've ever worried about those things? You're in a job, and you know there's an opportunity for you to advance, and so what do you start doing? You start working a little bit harder. You start having different conversations. You try to make sure that certain people see what you're doing. You make sure that you're on the radar, and you're doing all these things. Why? Because you want to move your position. You want to advance, and so you become stressed out. Why? Because you're like, oh, it has to be right. Otherwise, I won't get advanced, and I won't get a pay increase, and then my world will fall apart, and I won't be happy. Anybody think, yeah, that's the, that's the, the mental kind of gymnastics we do. If you and I actually trust God, do you trust God with your job, with your career, with the status that you have? Do you trust that God places you where he wants you to be and you don't get there on your own? See, Daniel didn't worry about where he was. Daniel wasn't trying to ascend to the most powerful position in the world. He was simply trusting God and being obedient and letting God take care of the rest. This is the way that people trusted God throughout the scriptures. Anybody remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph was another perfect example. You never find in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, you will never find Joseph advocating for himself. You'll never find him defending himself. You only see him simply being obedient where he was at. He gets the raw end of the deal, doesn't he? Every time, it seems like. His brothers sell him into slavery. That's not fair. And then the next step, what? He becomes such a good slave in Potiphar's household, he's entrusted with everything except Potiphar's wife. He advances, right? 
And then what happens is he gets falsely accused of trying to rape her. And then he gets thrown into prison instead of complaining. You never hear David or Dan, excuse me, you never hear Joseph say, oh, woe is me. I'm such a righteous guy, but I've gotten this horrible context that I'm in. You never hear that, do you? And then what happens in, in jail? He ends up becoming, what, the most powerful prisoner in all the jail. The warden basically gave him authority over the prisoners. And then if that wasn't enough, when he eventually gets out of prison, you know the story. He ends up, what, becoming not just second in command to Pharaoh. That's the title. But at that time, because Egypt dominated the world, guess what Joseph was? The most powerful human being in the world. Did he ever try to get there on his own? No, he didn't. He just let God do it. Now, I didn't warn my wife. Usually I warn my kids and my wife when I'm going to tell a story about them. So now you're getting the warning right now. It's positive, okay? Kim and I have this running joke, and it actually, it, it is, it's a joke, but it's true. My wife is very skilled in everything that she does, and, and, uh, and so when we first got married, you know, you're, I'm out of Bible college, and I'm into ministry, and, 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 you know, there's not a, in case you didn't know this, there's not a lot of money in ministry, okay? So if you're thinking you're going to, like, make lots of money in following Jesus in ministry, just so you know, don't do it, okay? <laughs> so we had this joke, but for years, she always made more money than me, always. And sometimes there were part-time positions that she worked that she still made more money than me. But there was a reason for that. It wasn't because Kim advocated for herself. It wasn't because Kim positioned herself. It's because Kim was just simply faithful in what she did. So when we first got married, she, she, was, working, she was working at Azusa Pacific University. She started in an entry-level position in the finance department. And within a year, she had transitioned and basically gotten promoted to a place where she was the assistant to the director of missions for Azusa Pacific, which is helping thousands of people to go into Mexico and do missions trips. And so she was, she was in a very influential position. Never, never vied for that, never tried to like, oh, look at me, look at me. She just simply followed the path God had for her. And then when we moved to Ventura, before when I was on staff at, at a church in Ventura, she went in as a temp into a business. This was before cell phones went through the roof. And actually, when pay phones were kind of the main avenue outside your house to communicate. And so there was a company in California, which was the most lucrative company in California, let alone probably the country, that basically was making money off of pay phones. And she came in as a temp, and within probably a year or two, she was the assistant to a multimillionaire running this company. And they just kept giving her advancement. And then, and then after that, she got another job, and she worked for this great company called Petunia Picklebottom, which if those of you who have kids may know, they are like the number one designer diaper bag company like in the world. They're amazing. And she came in kind of as an office manager, and she basically kind of like, they kept kind of like giving her more influence. And, and, and this amazing thing, I kept watching this. And finally, I think it took 12 years before I actually made more money than she did. But the point is not the money. The point was that she didn't try to do anything to try to advance herself. She didn't say, let me twist and tweak my resume to make it sound just right so I get just the right position. She just faithfully served and let God take care of the rest. Now, if you think about your life, wouldn't it be nice if you go to work tomorrow and you don't have to work about it, worry about advancement? You don't have to worry about what your boss thinks about you. You just have to be faithful and obedient to Jesus and then let him place you in position. You got really silent because a lot of you are stressing out about tomorrow morning, aren't you? I'm serious. Can you imagine if you didn't have to worry about your position in life? You didn't have to worry about your, your, where if you're, you're going to advance or not because God is going to advance you to where he wants you for his purpose. Second question. Look at verses 5 through 9. There's another question asked today. Do I trust God with my enemies? It's one thing to trust him with your position. How about your enemies? Look at verse 5. It says, Then these men said, We shall not find fault or find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless... We find it in connection with the law of his God. Verse 6, Then the high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. 
All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and uh, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So immediately, because Daniel is getting advanced, what happens? He's got enemies. He's popular with the king, but he's not popular with his peers. They don't like him because they, he's perceived as competition. And imagine this. Not only is he competition, he's not even from their people. He's one of the exiled. He's one in captivity. He's not even equal to them, and yet he's getting advancement, so automatically he has now enemies. People that are out for him. People that are maneuvering behind the scenes to, to somehow handicap him or limit him or keep him from advancing. They're doing these things. All why? Because they don't like him. So he's got enemies. Now, I know nobody in this room has any enemies in your life. You get along with everybody. Everybody's advocating for you. Everybody's on your side. You've never had a person in your life that's ever been against you, right? I'm being extremely sarcastic right now if you haven't figured that out. Because all of us face enemies. The question is, what do you do when you have an enemy? Do you defend yourself? Do you go back at them? Do you change? Do you, do you try to make sure that the truth gets out and you defend yourself so that the enemies don't win? What do you do? You can see from the way Daniel experienced life that he, he, he will look about it look in the next few verses. He doesn't really worry about that. He's not worried about his enemies. Why? What's his focus? God. Being faithful and obedient to God. That's all he's concerned about. He's not worried about what they're doing. He's not worried about the conversations. He's not saying, did you hear what such and such said about me? I can't believe it. All my world's falling apart. He didn't care. He wasn't worried about his enemies. Why? Because he knew that God was in control. So he could, what, live open-handed with his enemies. He didn't have to worry about his enemies. Have you ever been in a position where you feel like you have to defend yourself? And you're like, well, I have rights and I have to defend myself because if I don't defend myself, nobody's going to defend me. No one's going to see the truth and I have to let the truth out and I'm stressed out. Kim and I were in Target the other day, not in one of the local Targets, but one of a Target, and we, we were in the self-checkout area, and uh, we, right as we were checking out, like literally three feet behind us, there was a, in this encounter with an employee and, and a couple, and they were really mad. They were not happy. And so um, what had happened is they came through the self-checkout as well, and, and the lady had a pair of glasses up on her hair, like she was going to wear, she was wearing them. And, and as she was walking out, the employee said to her, excuse me, ma'am, did you scan those glasses? Well, she erupted. She said, how dare you question me that I would steal something, you know? And then her husband jumps in. I'm a business owner, and I can't believe I'm being treated. So then they call for the manager. The manager comes over and starts to kind of listen to what's going on. And so she's very calm. And, she, and, and the employee, you could look at him, he's almost in tears. And so finally, they kind of finish their tirade, and out they go, and who knows if she scanned the glasses or not? I think she probably didn't. Who knows if she did it on purpose or not? So, so we're still checking out. And we're listening to all this. And so he's like explaining to his manager, listen, I did everything that I'm supposed to do. I did exactly what protocol requires. I was kind. I was nice. I was, you know, all these things. And she's like, okay, I get it. I get it. And, you know, trying to calm him down. So we finished checking out and we go out to the car and then we get out and we realize there was one item in our basket that we didn't pay for. So Kim runs back in to pay for it. So she gets back in the same line, and the employee is there again, and he's still talking to his manager, completely stressed out over this, feeling like he's got to come to his own defense. So Kim listened to this, and she steps in. She goes, excuse me, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but can I just, can I say something? And the manager's like, sure. And so she looks at the employee and says, 
you did the right thing. You handled it well. And you need to not worry about this and not worry and not stress out about this. And then, then the manager says, yeah, now you can go on your break and chill out. And the manager looked at Kim and said, thank you. Because thank you for saying what I was trying to say for the last five minutes. You're okay. You don't have to defend yourself. You did what you were supposed to do. But how many times do you and I feel like that, like in our lives, like, oh, man, if somebody doesn't hear it from me, they're not going to hear it. I'm going to be wrongly accused, and the end of the world's going to come. What if you just said, God will take care of my enemies? I don't have to come to my own defense. God, in fact, God's better at it than we are. Listen to what he says. Paul writes this in, in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And how do you live peaceably with all, even your enemies? He says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Do you think God's better at this than we are? Leave it to him. Leave it to him. He'll take care of it. Justice will be served, ultimately, because God is in control and God is bigger than us. Then the third thing, look at verse 10. Third question of trust is, do I trust God when the rules change? When something changes that I don't want to change, do I change or do I remain constant? Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. When the rules changed for Daniel, what did Daniel do? The same thing he always did. The rules changed, but Daniel didn't. That's important. Because if you and I truly trust God, when the rules change around us, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to stress out about it. Why? Because ultimately God is in control. So I don't have to be in control. I can live open-handed. And that means when you live in a context or you live in a culture where the rules change and they change counter to what you believe in your convictions, you don't have to change. In fact, let me make this clear. You don't have to do anything except what you have previously been doing in following Jesus. That's what Daniel did. This is so important for us to capture this. Because we, somewhere down the line, we've got this whole concept mixed up. We are called to follow Jesus with our lives and let God be in control of the culture around us. The way that culture changes is not when God's people try to change culture. Culture changes when God's people are God's people. That's different. What do I mean by that? Let me just give a couple examples. Back in the 1960s, before I was even born, prayer was removed from schools. Anybody remember that? There's a big you know, court case, and an atheist brought a, brought a lawsuit against a school. And so this, it was decided that, that prayer needs to be removed from schools because it's unconstitutional. And immediately, what did Christians do? Reacted strongly. Oh, everything's falling apart because prayers, there's no prayer in schools. Just to clarify... Prayer was never removed from schools. Formal prayer required to, by every student was removed, which means the, that you are still free to pray all the time, and still today, you're still free to pray all the time in school. You know, this is my theory. One of the things about the reaction of people, those people who were saying, oh, they took prayer in schools, and that's when our society started to go downhill. No, it started a long time ago, okay? But what, what was that, that mentality? That mentality? I think for most of those people, they didn't even pray when it wasn't in school. It's not about prayers. What is about their religious right? What happens when the rule change for Daniel? He's not supposed to pray to anybody about what the king. Who is he praying to? God. He's doing what he's always previously done. He's not worried about the rules because those rules, in his mind, don't apply to him. Because his focus is on God. And this is so important for the church. How do we change the culture we live in? We don't protest the culture. 
So it's not prayer in schools anymore. You know what it is today? It's gay marriage. The rules changed, didn't they? And what happens when the rules change? Because I'll guarantee you, the rules are going to keep changing around the culture that we live in. They're going to keep changing. And the church will become the smaller and smaller minority in its convictions. What are we going to do? We're going to legislate. We're going to make laws that protect our religious rights. Or we're going to go and we're going to protest. And we're going to stand outside of you know, government buildings and tell them that this is wrong. No! Where do you ever see Daniel doing that? Where do you see anybody in the Bible doing that? What are we doing when we do that? We're not trusting God. What are we doing? We're taking matters into our own hands, and we're trying to control what only God can control. Culture changes when God's people are God's people. That is a huge relief to me, because people come to me like, oh, what are we going to do? Gay marriage is legal now. I mean, the church is going to fall apart. Is it really? As though that is the worst thing ever. I'm going to do the same thing I've always done. I'm going to have compassion and grace and mercy for people as they navigate something in their life that they struggle with. That's what we're going to do as a church. That's what we're going to do as followers of Jesus. We're going to be God's people in a world that is counter to us. And if we do that, guess what? We're trusting God with the outcome. We're trusting God even when the rules change. We don't have to change. We don't have to be bigoted and we don't have to be hateful and we don't have to be anti-anybody. We just have to be pro-Jesus. And then let God do what he's going to do. I'll get off the soapbox and move on. Fourth question. Look at verses 11 through 15. So the rules change, but what happens? Here's the, fifth, the fourth question. Do I trust God when things are unfair? Oh, man, I hate this one. <laughs> I wish I could remove these verses. All right, I'm going to ask you something, and the answer is, like, obvious. It's a rhetorical question. Has anyone ever said, that's not fair? Okay, that was my mantra growing up. Everything was unfair. So let's, let's look at what happens to Daniel. So verses 11 through 15. It says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So he's violating their law. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the, the thing that stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles, again, not even one of us, of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the, or, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. That's not fair. That's not fair. They changed the rules. They tricked. They manipulated. They tricked the king himself to catch Daniel so that they could somehow destroy him and they could advance themselves. That is not fair. But where in the passage do you hear those words coming out of the mouth of Daniel? You don't. You never do. He never says, that's not fair. And here, here's why Daniel says, doesn't say that. And here's one of the reasons you and I should not say that. Because when we say it's not fair, you know what we're really saying? It's not fair to me. That's what we're saying. Very, very, every so often, there will be someone who comes along and says, it's not fair to them. I need to advocate for them. I need to make it fair. I need justice for them. But usually when we're crying out, it's not fair, we're saying to God, it's not fair to me. And here's, here's an eye-opener, okay? So you understand why fairness is never should be a part of our dialogue. 
Because the whole concept of the gospel, the God of the universe loving human beings and sending his son into the world, Jesus, to die for our sin, to rise from the dead, to give us forgiveness and life, is based in unfairness. The gospel's foundation is unfair. Unfair to God. Think about this for a moment. God is absorbing our sin. God is taking on our sin through Jesus. God is paying the price for our sin through Jesus. That's not fair to Jesus. And in a sense, on the flip side, it's not fair to us either. Why? Because we're not getting what we deserve. We don't deserve glory and riches and becoming sons and daughters of God. We don't deserve any of that. What do we deserve? Death and punishment. But we don't get that. Why? Because Jesus took it unfair and unfairness onto himself so that somehow we could be in God's family. That's unfair to God. So if you think about that, when you think about the way that we understand God, we have to understand God works differently than we do. See, we always look at things in terms of fairness to ourselves. Here's a perfect example. Matthew chapter 20, there's a, there's a great parable that Jesus tells about an overseer of a, of a vineyard who goes out and hires people to work. And so he goes in the morning, he hires a bunch of people, says, hey, I'll pay you this much money if you work in the vineyard. They're like, good, we're in. So they come. He goes out at noontime, does the same thing, brings people and says, I'll pay you this much money. They said, great. He goes out like an hour before quitting time and does the same thing. and says, if you come work in the vineyard, I'll pay you this much. And when they had to uh, settle all the accounts and all the employees had to come in and he's paying everybody, you remember how the story goes? Those who started in the morning, they're like, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not fair. We worked all day, and they only worked for an hour, and we're getting paid the same. And then what does that, that overseer say to them? Didn't we agree to that? Didn't you say yes at 8 o'clock this morning that you would work for this much money? Why are you so worried about that person? Because it's not fair to who? To me. You and I can't say that anymore. Why? Because Jesus has already taken that unfairness on himself. So now what we get is we get grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and a welcoming into God's family through Jesus' death and his resurrection? Aren't you glad that God was not fair to himself? So we don't have to worry about fairness. And then the fifth question, verse 16 to 23, do I trust God with my life? Which is everything. Do I live open-handedly? So listen, verse 16 to 23. It says, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. There's a couple, that and there's a letter statement. That's powerful. This is a pagan king looking at Daniel, being so impressed with his commitment to God. He knows what happens when people get thrown in the lion's den. They're done. Within minutes, literally, they're done. But he says to Daniel, that God that you pray to, the God that seems to be amazing, I pray, I hope, he will deliver you. He will do a miracle for you. So going on, it says... And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went with haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, your God, whom you served continually, has been able to deliver you from the lions. Catch that. He's assuming that Daniel might be alive. I'm sure every single other person ever thrown into the lion's den, the king didn't get up the next morning and go call their name. But he called Daniel's name. Why? Because he was so impressed with Daniel's God that he thought there's a possibility Daniel might have survived because his God is powerful and miraculous. 
So then going on, Daniel says, in, it says in, in verse 20, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the, mouths, the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. This is the key phrase in the entire chapter, the last part of verse 23, because he had trusted in his God. I know when we read that, you know, we read the, the first verse before that, and we think, well, da- Daniel was perfect, and he was blameless, and there's no... Th- Why was Daniel... Was Daniel sinless? No, he's a human being. The Bible's not saying that Daniel was sinless. The Bible doesn't say that of any human being. He was blameless. Why? There's one phrase that is, is the key to everything. He trusted in his God. That's what made him blameless. That was, that's what's made him right, because he, he wasn't trusting in himself. He wasn't trusting in the king. He was trusting in God. And that meant that Daniel was able to trust God with his very life. So think about this. You know, here's the, the hard part of, for us, the disadvantage we have with reading stories from the Bible like this is that we know the beginning, the middle, and the end. So we read it already pushing ourselves with great momentum towards the end. We know that at the end, Daniel is saved. So that's the way we read it. Daniel was not reading his story. He was living it. So when he got thrown in the lion's den, he's not like, well, I know how this is going to end. I've read the book. No, he didn't know what was going to happen. He's being, he thinks that his life is probably going to be over apart from God's miraculous power on his behalf. He's in the middle of his story. Yet he's willing to, to, to he, he didn't go kicking and screaming. You don't see any of that. He says, okay, whether I live or whether I die, I trust God. So he did. See, here's the thing. In order to be saved from lions, you have to be in the lion's den. Do you get that? That means that you have to be willing to risk everything in order to see God break through in your life. See, we want the safe kind of approach. I'll give you a 50%, but I'm not giving you the other 50%. You're going to have to save me in this, this risk. That's not risk. Risk is all or nothing. Daniel risked everything. He held nothing back from God, and that's why he was rescued. Why? Because he trusted his very life to God. And it wasn't that somehow... He was holding his, uh, closing his eyes and holding his breath. Okay, God, save me. Yeah, he was hoping that, but guess what? Daniel knew if God took him in that moment or he saved him, God was still in control of everything. That's why he could offer his life. And if you and I understand the way that looks, that, that context, that God is calling you, he's not asking us to give him a percentage of our life. He's asking us to give us all of who we are, open-handed. I can't protect it. I can't c- control it. I can't close my hand. It, my hand, it's open to you. It all belongs to you. Risk everything and then watch what God will do because God will still be in control. When we planted our church in, in Ventura a number of years ago, we were about two years in. We were meeting in another church facility on Saturday nights and we reached the place where we knew that we needed our own facility. We were reaching a lot of young families and the dynamic from meeting on a Saturday night only was that we were reaching a lot of young families who spent all day long on the soccer field or the baseball diamond. And when you get to Saturday night and you've got three kids who are in sports all day and they're sunburned and they're grouchy and they're hungry, the last thing you want to do is bring your kids to church, right? So we knew that, 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 that the, 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 the part of our church that was growing, we weren't going to reach them anymore if they couldn't access church on a Sunday morning. And so we said, okay, it's time to make a shift. We need to find a facility where we can get on Sunday morning. So we knew it was time for us to get our own place. 
So I started doing my homework, and we started looking through the city of Ventura, trying to find space that we could renovate. And we found some space, and so I put a budget together and started running some numbers and worked with a realtor. And so I had this kind of presentation I made to our church council, which was our, it's the primary kind of financial governing board of our church, like our, our church today here. And so, so I sat down, and I remember, this is in my dining room in my, in my house, because when you plant a church, uh, pretty much as a pastor, everything kind of meshes together. So the church office was my house. There was a room designated. That's the church office. Um, that's when I literally my commute was from my living room to my bedroom, and that was it. No traffic. It was beautiful. But then, so so council meetings were the the counseling conference room was my dining room table. So it was all kind of meshed together. So we were heavily invested in this church plant. We were all in on this. And so I presented to the council. It took me about twenty minutes, and I explained to them all the numbers and what we we're going to do. And I said, I know this is going to require a ton of faith. We're going to have to believe that God is in this, but we need to really pray. And I feel like this is where God's moving. So I put all my time and energy into it. And so I, I, I finished and I looked at them. I said, okay, well, what do you guys think? And I'm just waiting. They're kind of looking at me. They're looking kind of stunned. And they said, you're crazy. I said, what do you mean? I'm thinking, are you thinking I'm crazy because I have more faith? Or are you thinking I'm crazy because I'm about to do something stupid? And it was, yeah, I'm about to do something stupid category. And they said, don't you realize that, the, you know, we had a rough start at church. We had, in two years, we had stabilized. Income was good, and church was growing, and things were starting to move forward a bit. And they're like, the church is stable. Why would you do this? Why would you think about trying to get our own facility? And, and, and we have a good amount of income in the bank right now. You're going to put that at risk. I mean, we're going to have to, like, go into our savings, and we're going to have to, like, do this. And they're going round and round. I'm like, I'm shocked. And so I let them kind of go round and round for about 10 minutes. And then I said, okay, enough. And I said, listen, let me just be really honest with you. I said, if we're all in on this and we fail and the church closes up and we can't pay our bills and we're done, I said, this is the way it works. I said, you'll find another church to attend. Yeah, we love each other and we're in community, but you'll simply just change churches. I said, if this fails for me, I lose my income, I lose my house, I lose my job, I have to start over from scratch. I said, you guys aren't putting anything on the line. I said, I'm the one that's putting everything on the line. And they all sat back and went, oh, I guess you're right. I said, you won't miss a paycheck. You'll just have to drive maybe a mile or two further to go to church than you do right now. And I remember at first, I was like, oh, Lord, help me. Because if this is what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of years to get this transition going, and then the, the, you could start to see the light went on. I'm like, yeah, man, if Pastor John believes this, then, and he's putting everything at risk, then maybe we should. And the church jumped in, and we made the transition. If God's calling us forward into something, he's calling us to be all in. Daniel obviously was all in. He risked everything. And he, because of that, God was faithful in his life. And then the final question is this. In verse 24 to 28, do I trust God's pathway for God's purpose? Let me explain what that means. Let me just read the, the last handful of verses in this, this chapter. It says, And then the king uh, commanded, and those who had, had maliciously uh, accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. These are his enemies. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones. See, that's the normal kind of thing that happens when you're in the lion's den didn't happen to Daniel. Verse 25, then, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelt in all the world, or all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Then listen to the words that come out of the mouth of a pagan god. 
For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be, uh, shall be to, uh, to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion, so this Daniel prospered during the kings of Darius and the reign of Cyprus the Persian. Are you kidding me? Do you hear what just those last handful of verses... In this short story, because Daniel trusted God, what happened? Not only was Daniel saved, that's pretty significant, from a den of very hungry lions. But his enemies were dealt with. But capture this. Darius had power over much of the known world at this time, and he sends out a decree, and in his own words, gives praise to the God of Daniel over all of the earth. Kind of a good day, isn't it? Just think about that. But I can guarantee you this. That was not Daniel's plan. It's a good plan. It's what God wanted. But Daniel didn't set out and say, you know what? I'm going to pray with my windows open so people see me, so I can be thrown into the lion's den, so I can be saved, so all the world can worship God. That wasn't Daniel's plan. What was Daniel's plan? To be obedient and trust God. But God was working out a plan that even though to Daniel, it might have not looked like a very good plan. Any day when you wake up and you have to go into the lion's den, that's probably not a good day for you. And you're thinking, how can this be God's will for my life? See, because here's the challenge when you and I follow Jesus. When we get a destination in mind, you know what we're quick to do? Help God to get us there, aren't we? See, God shows you the destination, and he also tells you, I will guide you to get there. You know why he does that? Because two, one of two reasons I've discovered in my life. If we try to get there on their own and buy by accident, we get there. You know what we do? We forget God. And we say, look at what I've done. But you know what most of the time happens? When we see the destination and we try to get there, we never get there. And then we get mad at God because he's failed us. Why? Because he gave us the destination. We filled in the pathway, and he never told us to fill in the pathway. And that's why when you follow Jesus, you will take a right turn when you think you're supposed to turn left. If you follow God and trust him, he will take you down paths that you don't think you're supposed to go because it doesn't fit to where you think you're going. Let me put it this way in a more modern kind of framework. Anybody use the Waze app on your phone? Okay. I know people in our church who live on, in fact, Jeff Ross, who's on his way back with with our, our students from camp right now, he drives for pretty much for a living. He drives thousands and thousands of miles every month. He's in the top 1% of all users for Waze. It's crazy. The guy drives like a maniac. But we were talking about it, and he said, he goes, listen, he goes, 99.9% of the time, Waze is right on. He said, and I've learned something. He said, so many times, I'll pop in an address, and I'll hit go, and it'll take turns, and I'm thinking, there's no way if we go this way, it's going to be the fastest way. And he said, almost every single time that he's kind of overridden it and did his own thing, it always took longer. He said, and so he's learned, when Waze says to go right, you go Right. When it says to go left, you go left. In fact, yesterday, Kim and I were out in the valley, and we were using Waze. We were going to go to a store, and so I grew up in the valley. I know it really well, okay? And so I think sometimes for fun, we, Kim and I will do that. We'll put Waze on to say, hey, where is Waze going to take us now? It's going to take us a different way. So we're getting off the 405 at Sherman Way, and I knew that where we were going, we needed to go east, but it said go west. I'm like, so we're getting on the, off the off-ramp, and I'm like, this is so wrong, I said, I grew up, it's Sherman Way. I mean, literally, I grew up three miles from there. Church on the way is like another mile. I'm like, I, I could close my eyes and find my way around the valley. And so it's, and Kim's like, no, it says go right. It says you're supposed to go west. I said, that can't be right. There's no way. This is wrong. And she goes, trust it. 
I'm like, you're right, you know. So I turn right, and then it turns right again. And then about a mile down the road, I'm like, oh, now I know where we're going. And then we take, I'm like, and sure enough, it saved 10 minutes. Because Kim kept plugging in the alternative routes. They're like, oh, save 10, and it did, it saved 10 minutes. Because it knew where less traffic was that was going to get us to where we're going faster. Think about this. How many times when God says, I'm leading you this direction, you think there's no way that could be your will for my life. There's, it, it just doesn't look right. You know, I'm sure Daniel didn't think, oh, yeah, the lion's den, that's God's will for my life. No, he didn't do that. But he trusted God. And if you and I are willing to trust God, you and I will be shocked and surprised by what he does in our life that you and I could have never orchestrated, and we will reach destinations that we could have never got to on our own. Let me close with this, and then the worship team is going to come for one last quick song, and then we'll dismiss. I know we're a little short on time. So I mentioned, obviously, many of you know, Kim and I were in Ventura for a number of years. We, we, before we planted a church, we were on staff at a church that was called Horizon Foursquare Church with Dennis Easter. Many of you know who Dennis is. And so when we were on staff there a couple of years into that, before we went out and planted a church, there, we had a, an evening of prayer for our leadership. And there was a, a lady there who had a gift, a prophetic gift, and she was praying for people. And then she was just sharing what the Lord was giving her for their lives. It was a profound time for our leaders. And so... She came and she was praying for Kim and I. She laid hands on us and she prayed for us. And she said this. She said, listen, she goes, I, the Lord's showing me that you guys are going to go out from Horizon and then you're going to come back in. And we're like, oh. So immediately my mind's like, we're going to be missionaries. Or we're going to do something. We're going to go out and then we're going to come back in. And then, and then like for days and weeks after that, I'm just like thinking through, what could that mean? And I'm feeling in like, okay, well, maybe we're going to go out and plant a church. And then when the church transitions, Dennis leaves, then we're going to come back in and we're going to pastor Horizon again. So this is all going through my mind. And so there's always, there was always this kind of trajectory like, okay, we're going out and we're coming back in. So we went out and we planted the church. And, and while we were planting the church, Dennis Easter transitioned. And, and a new pastor came in. And I remember when Dennis transitioned, I'm thinking, God, is this it? Is this our way back into Horizon? And I didn't get the call. Still planting the church, plugging away, dealing with leaders that don't have any faith, right? Just kind of moving forward. And so I'm like, okay, God, that, maybe that's not it. Okay. And then all of a sudden, we end up in Newburgh, Oregon. And I kept thinking, Lord, you gave us a word years ago that we were going to go out, and then we're going to come back. And now we're a thousand miles away from Horizon. We're going the opposite direction. And I remember thinking, like, okay, God, but we're going to trust you, but this doesn't make sense. And then about a month after we got to Newburgh, I was sitting going through some paperwork from the history of the church. And the church is about 15 to 20 years old when we got there. And as I was reading through the information of the church, it hit me. The original name of the church in Newburgh, and the, change, the name had been changed about five years before we got there, was Horizon Foursquare Church. And it had been changed to Newburgh Foursquare Church, but its founding name was Horizon Foursquare. I sat there at my desk and I went, okay. I get it. I would have never, ever said, okay, I'm going to go back to Horizon in Newburgh because the only Horizon I had on my mind was Ventura. But God had another Horizon in Newburgh, Oregon. And I'll never forget that. that the span between that word and going to, to Newburgh was probably 10 to 12 years. I kept thinking, okay, God, this is it, but you're taking me the wrong way. You're taking me the wrong way. And God goes, no, I'm not. I'm taking you right where I want you to be. And so when we close with this, listen, if you're going to trust God with your life, you're going to live like this, not like this. You're going to live open-handed. Then whatever he leads you, wherever he takes you, know that even though it may look like a dark alley that no one would have any business going down, and you know that God seems to be leading you, go. Because God knows what he's doing. 
You can trust God fully. You don't know the end of the story. God knows the end of the story, and he will lead you there if you trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't understand all the way that you work, but we do understand this. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you came. And we know that you have given us life through your death and resurrection, that as we turn our lives over to you, Jesus, and follow you, and not go down the road that we used to go down, but Lord, turn to follow you, that you will lead us on the pathway you've marked out for us to the destination that you've purposed for us. But Lord, you ask one simple thing for us. We know it's hard. You want us to trust you fully. So Lord, I pray for us right now, those who are facing financial challenges, those who are facing relational challenges, those who are facing physical challenges. Lord, there are people here today who are, are dealing with disease or maybe they're dealing with family members that are suffering. And Lord, we look at situations and we go, God, where are you? I pray that today, Lord, that you would help us to know that we can settle in to this peace that knows we can trust you. We can trust you with relationships, with money, with careers, with family. We can trust you. You're trustworthy. And Lord, that that trust won't waver when times get tough. Lord, when circumstances and the rules change, we would remain constant in following you and being obedient to you. And just, Lord, just as Daniel had an excellent spirit within him. Lord, we know who that spirit was. It was your spirit. That, Lord, we have the same spirit, that excellent spirit in us, so that we can remain true and constant to follow you through whatever we walk through and truly trust you in all things. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.